Hey, everyone. Um, so I, th I think um, at least the, the quick in influx of people is, has stopped. So I think it might be a good time for us to start. Um, so first of all, I'd like to welcome everyone who's in attendance for the panel on labor and the less response to COVID-19. Um, please note this meeting is being recorded for the purpose of sharing its audio uh, in the near future. Is, uh, is everyone okay with that? Um, if is anyone not okay with that, I can go ahead and unmute everyone. Everyone's okay with that? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, thank you. I agree. Great. Um, so moving on, um, tonight we'll be listening to a number of organizers who represent the interests of working class people at large. I don't believe I need to remind anyone in attendance about the shock drawing people to ask questions, many for the first time, about the relation between their labor and the economy at large. Uh, what brought this meeting together is a sense of urgency. Um, we want to have workers who are concerned about the roles that they'll be playing in this brave new world and, um, and the way they're going to be writing its history uh, moving forward. If you have any questions or comments, please submit them using the message feature, um, which I can't seem to find. Um, so I guess we'll just have to ask them at the end. And um, those will be handled by Jonathan Chavez, a local organizer with the DSA. Uh, first to speak will be Zach Fraley uh, with the Inland Boatman's Union and a member of Borderland Socialists. Uh, followed by him will be Avery Weir, a county social worker specializing in adult protective services. He is also a rank and file member of SEIU Local 221. In addition, we'll have Leslie, the librarian, Armando Valenzuela, a Walmart worker and a member of United for Respect. Um, and lastly, we'll have Rafael Bautista, an organizer with the San Diego Tenants Union. Um, and at that, we'll go ahead and start with Zach. Am I, uh, can everybody hear me? Yes, I can. Great, thank you. Uh, first of all, thanks to everybody for being here and everybody who helped put this together. Uh, it's an honor to be speaking at this. Um, and I'm just gonna jump right into it. Uh, the current crisis we're facing is obviously a health crisis. Uh, caused by the outbreak of the COVID-19 virus. But on the other hand, it's also a crisis of capitalism that's already and will continue to exacerbate uh, the death toll that we're facing. Uh, and so it's gonna be useful for us as we're thinking about next steps to kind of sketch a basic outline of why capitalism is proving so incapable of dealing with this crisis and what a socialist response would look like uh, as as we discuss our next steps uh, going forward. Uh, so first I want to start out uh, with a little bit of theory. Uh, I won't bore you all too long with it, I promise. Um, Karl Marx described capitalism as a system of generalized commodity production. That is the production of goods primarily for exchange through sale rather than for use. And because pro this profit through exchange model is the motive force behind capitalism, there emerges a drive to convert all goods that are produced into commodities. That is to convert them into goods that are able to be sold uh, and potentially made into a profit. Uh, and this includes uh, everything we buy at the grocery store, but also healthcare, food, housing, education, uh, whatever it is that we consume, capitalism wants to commodify it. 
And so Marx points out that as a commodity, a thing has two different kinds of value. First, it has to have a use value. Uh, this is the value that's inherent in the product itself uh, that makes it useful to its owner. The use value of the chair I'm sitting in is that I can sit in it, of pencil is that I can write with it, and so on. Uh, and use value is necessary in order to make it possible to sell commodities. If it wasn't useful, nobody would buy them. Uh, but from an analytical standpoint, it's actually not the most important value for capitalism. After all, atmospheric oxygen has a very important use value in that it lets us breathe, but it has almost no value as far as the capitalist price mechanism is concerned. At least not yet. I'm sure they're going to try and find a way to sell that to us too. Um, this is because capitalist commodity exchange operates according to the law of exchange value. Exchange value is what we normally think of when we talk about the value of a product. Unlike use value, which is particular to a certain type of product, exchange value is abstract and universal. It can be transferred and compared across totally different types of products. And for Marx, this value is determined by the amount of socially necessary labor that goes into a product. But it's measured every, in everyday dealings as money, dollar, dollars, euros, yen, whatever the case may be. Uh, and so this is why we can say that my chair has the same value as, let's say, 500 pencils, even though my chair has exactly zero value for writing and a pencil has zero value for sitting. So what is this theoretical distinction between use value and exchange value and capitalism's emphasis on exchange value over use value have to do with this current crisis that we're facing? Well. As I alluded to earlier, the capitalist market is regulated by profit. So in order to survive, each firm has to produce exchange values worth more than its total expenditures on labor and raw materials. So as a result, investment flows towards where production is most profitable and dries up completely where it's not. The problems with this is that it leads to a totally irrational organization of production from the perspective of use values. Remember, use values are a fancy way of saying human needs, uh, you know, the, the actual uses that we apply these products uh, towards. Uh, and this is always the case under capitalism. We see luxury apartments are built and often sit empty while homeless people live on the street. Perfectly good food unable to be sold is dumped by the ton as people go hungry. Uh, we see uh, in the field of health, expert surgeons and profitable procedures scatter across multiple competing hospitals while other life-saving procedures are totally neglected. And the current crisis has only exposed and exacerbated this phenomenon. Despite the fact we have the technical ability to produce the medical equipment that we need, uh, the personal protective equipment for healthcare workers, we're seeing massive shortages because it's simply not profitable to do so. Despite the fact that we have plenty of housing for all, millions are facing threat of eviction after losing their jobs. Capitalism can't properly respond to the crisis because to do so would be to break with its driving force, the profit motive. And so concretely, what has the capitalist response to this crisis looked like as a result of this dynamic? Uh, essentially, it's been uh, what we would expect uh, to bail themselves out and to leave workers to fend for themselves. The only significant aid workers in the U.S. have gotten is a pitiful one-time $1,200 check, which is already late arriving for many, and, and will only be gobbled up by landlords and banks anyways, without a moratorium on rent and debt collection. We're going to hear a lot more about 
uh, as we go. Despite having a ready-made law that would allow them to centralize and direct production of necessary medical equipment in the form of the Defense Production Act, the Trump administration has instead only applied the law to General Motors, which is presumably because of Trump's bizarre personal feud with GM CEO, uh, and even then hasn't actually enforced the order. And now Trump and the Republicans are pushing to reopen the economy early, while at the same time refusing to fund the massive tests and track programs that would be necessary to do so without costing billions of lives. On the other hand, the Democrats' main complaint uh, about the uh, emergency bill was that the $1,200 check wasn't sufficiently means-tested. So the mainstream critique that the Trump response has been incompetent is, of course, true. It's obvious for anyone to see that he's incompetent but it's not entirely correct, there's more to it. Trump and his wealthy supporters aren't in a rush to reopen the economy because they don't understand what the consequences are. They're doing so because they see correctly that taking the necessary steps to prevent millions of deaths would pose a dire threat to the capitalist system itself. And so they've made the calculation that saving capitalism as we know it is worth a few million bodies. And just uh, for some context, epidemiologists have estimated the most 1.7 million people would die if the quarantine is lifted prematurely. The capitalist class and its representatives are doing everything they can to milk just a few extra dollars out of our corpses. So really the only possible answer to this kind of disaster capitalism that the, the, the ruling class is posing as the solution uh, is our own disaster socialism for workers. Uh, capitalists can't or won't use the existing infrastructure we have in order to meet the massive requirements that this crisis poses. And so the solution is to commandeer the existing forces of production and reorient them towards social needs rather than profits. I'm just going to sketch an outline of some preliminary steps of what that could look like. Um, so first to mandate that all providers in the healthcare sector provide free and accessible coronavirus testing and treatment to everyone who needs it, abolishing all medical fees and debt obligations for the duration of the pandemic, pass emergency universal paid sick leave, freeze layoffs, furloughs, and terminations, drastic emergency wealth taxes on the super rich uh, to finance uh, the, this kind of production. Um, for the duration of the pandemic, suspend all payments for credit cards, student loans, car loans, and utilities, halt all rent and mortgage payments, nationalize health-related industries, or produce ventilators, masks, hand sanitizers, gloves, and other materials uh, needed to stop the spread of the virus, and guarantee their free distribution, as well as enough supply for the safety of healthcare workers. This could be accomplished in part by redirecting all military funds to an emergency public health response, uh, and we need a total rejection of this notion of martial law needing to be imposed for quarantine. Uh, and instead, the distribution of goods and healthcare supplies uh, should fall on committees democratically elected by neighbors, shop floor committees, and other leaders. And we know now that uh, prisons and ICE detention centers are hotbeds of the spread of this disease. Uh, we're seeing prisoners. Uh, saying that it's a death, tra death trap and holding up signs in the windows saying basically, save us, we're dying here. Just free all pr prisoners awaiting trial, all political prisoners, 
all ICE detainees and nonviolent inmates uh, and use hotels, office spaces, and any unoccupied properties to house the unhoused. Uh, they're not being used anyways, and you can't self-quarantine if you don't have a place to stay. So these are the steps we need to take right now in order to meet people's needs, but that's not going to be enough uh, after the, health, the initial health crisis subsides. A lot of people have lost and will continue to lose income during this crisis. So we need an economic program that goes beyond the immediate demands uh, of the COVID-19 response that will actually decommodify large parts of the economy. Uh, so some, a few examples of what this could look like would be nationalizing big banks and then using them to finance progressive programs, the Green New Deal and a universal jobs guarantee, nationalizing the oil and gas sector, with an eye towards putting them out of business and transitioning to green energy. Uh, and along those lines, Green New Deal is rebuild infrastructure, reduce carbon emissions, put carbon sector workers back to work, single-payer health insurance uh, system, and a national health program in the long term. And I think the crisis has really just proven beyond a doubt the necessity of that kind of national program to be able uh, to confront uh, new kinds of disease like this. Uh, and an immediate expansion of unemployment insurance. Uh, and then beyond that, so that we're not just handing people money to buy more commodities, uh, the introduction of new programs to actually just directly provide the basic services that people need, free housing, education, food, healthcare, and so on. Uh, so with that in mind, uh, Avery is going to take it from here to talk a little bit more about the history of how the workers' movement has confronted crises like this in the past, um, and some concrete examples of like what this type of response looks like. Yeah, thanks, Zach. And as I'm listening to the things that really need to be done to make sure we're doing all we can to minimize deaths and to minimize the suffering from the economic disaster that's also unfolding, I bear in mind that while those steps would be dramatic, and there have already been some dramatic steps taken, that this has been tried before. It's not as though we don't know that this could work. In World War II, the federal government reorganized the economy in order to carry out war production. Uh, and in doing so, it permanently reshaped industry, won the war, and also ended the Great Depression. After Pearl Harbor, Roosevelt ordered industry to shift. So in 1940, in the United States, there were 3 million cars produced. Um, but between Pearl Harbor and 1945, the end of the war, there were 139 cars produced in the United States. Instead, the factories had to convert to war production. Ford factories, for example, producing the Model T before the war. And the Model T had 15,000 assembled parts within it. Ford factories retooled to make the B-24 long-range bomber. And that had 1.5 million parts in it. So it had 100 times more parts. So it was a very large technical shift that had to be made. But six months after Pearl Harbor, B-24s were rolling off the line every 63 minutes. 
complete B-24s. Now, before the war, the U.S. ranked 39th in world military power, 39th. By the end, and to this very day, it overwhelmingly dominated world military production. And all of this shows that we don't have to be chained by the priorities of the markets when we decide we're going to make a shift. But why are these kinds of shifts only done for war? Well, Zach already talked about some things that could be done. On April 6th, the State Council of the of my union, Leslie and I, our union, the SEIU, uh, at the California State Council letter level, sent a letter to Governor Newsom, and they advocated that the governor mandate that industry manufacturing in the state of California shift to producing PPE, uh, also that he create a real-time online monitoring and feedback system for workers who use PPE, a step for kind of democratizing the process, and also that he produced transparent public reports, inventorying the stocks and supplies so the, all of us could participate in making sure we're making this change at the PPE that we need. And he also, they also uh, asked that Newsom create what they call a, quote, strike force which would centralize the expansion efforts for production of PPE and also ensure that there's equitable distribution. Because right now, the crisis is taking a wildly disproportionate toll on communities of color. With Black people in Michigan, for example, accounting for 43% of the cases while being, I believe, 15% of the population. Uh, the Navajo Nation has seen a, a wildly disproportionate infection rate uh, on their reservation in Arizona, and we don't know all the details of these kinds of impacts yet. So things could be done, and SEIU State Council put forward some pretty good ideas about that. It's, I think, valuable to ask what it is that's so difficult for things for, for us to make these kinds of shifts? What are the obstacles? Because in a sharing economy, taking a break from normal work uh, and production, would it could be a simple matter. We could simply just maintain excess capacity of medical supplies and hospitals. We could have a reserve core of healthcare workers who aren't on duty at all times, but can be called up as a reserve core. But these are things that the private healthcare sector refuses to do because of their market competitive obsession with lean, just-in-time production. And they short-sightedly consider that the reduction of waste. Uh, if free, if basic survival goods were guaranteed free, things like food, housing, heating, diapers, then they could continue as normal if they were free to start with. You wouldn't have a problem in a crisis. And stopping non-essential economic activity would not have to ruin anyone. If rent and bills didn't have to be paid, we could just stop doing certain things for a while and then start again. After all, the virus doesn't destroy machines. It doesn't destroy buildings and roads and technical expertise or any of things that make up the actual wealth of society. 
things that are a capitalist circulation of money moves around, but it doesn't create those things. Money doesn't do that. Uh, but in our society as it is, you can't just stop for a while and can't and back and then start back up. You can't just take a break like that. And why is that? It's because each company, each consumer, each landlord and each bank are counting on an unbroken flow of purchases and bill payments uh, because they each owe other companies, banks and landlords. So there's this chain of payments. And when all of this is cut, when it stops, businesses, rather than just taking a break, they have to lay off workers. And ultimately, they go out of business. And I know plenty of restaurants around my home in Lemon Grove and La Mesa that I've called to order and they're not, they're not serving anymore. Renters and homeowners face eviction or foreclosure. Private banks threaten to fail, although the banks seem to never fail because the government always bails them out with trillions of dollars, somehow never considering that banks which fail over and over could instead just be taken over by the people, run under democratic control of the workers and the depositors, and turned into public utilities instead of what they are, which is profit-dependent time bonds. Other things just cascade from there. The stock market crashes, government taxes and revenues crater, and public spending, short or long-term, gets cut to make up for the shortfall. This is nothing new. All of this happens about every 10 years. And sometimes it's disastrous. Other times it's catastrophic. I'm concerned about which kind it's going to be this time. The scale of the current collapse is so far, frankly, the largest in history. With the economy predicted to shrink by 24% this quarter, an annualized rate, Steve Mnuchin has forecasted that there's going to be 30% unemployment. The $2 trillion federal stimulus package, the largest ever, may not be large enough. And it contains important things like increasing unemployment benefits, also alongside huge and unnecessary bank and corporate bailouts. Because we never fully recovered from the 2008 crash, interest rates already too low before the COVID outbreak to be of much use now. Usually the Federal Reserve cuts interest rates by several points to cushion a recession. But this time, the rates were already too close to zero to be cut by that much. They hadn't ever been able to raise them back up enough. Then there's Trump's tax cuts, which mostly went to the wealthy and which created no more than one half of 1% of increased economic growth for maybe a year or less after the cuts were enacted. Then the effects wore off, but they caused the unprecedented phenomenon of deficit spending during an expansion and not during a war. And those tax cuts and that deficit spending mean there's less money for stimulus programs. And whatever stimulus spending does take place will come from further borrowing instead of the reserves that it could have come from. Now, a crash this deep has never happened before. Goldman Sachs projects a fast recovery once we get back to work with lost growth made up for by the end of the year.
Other forecasters, like Doug Henwood, fear that a crash this deep creates huge complications that set the stage for a prolonged depression. I don't know which is true, but even in the optimistic scenario, the gigantic holes in government budgets at all that are being created by the middle quarters of 2020 are gonna be an epic problem. And if history tells us anything, there will be a struggle over who pays for this. The working majority through slash services, layoffs and unemployment, or the wealthy through taxes on the wealth they have accumulated for decades by profiting off our labor. So the kind of steps that Zach was outlining conform to one overarching theme, the decommodification of the economy. That is reorienting production towards meeting human needs rather than the profit motive. The capital will not deliver these changes, or at least they'll only deliver them in small doses for as short a time as possible in order to save themselves, because they do irreparable damage to the profit system upon which their existence as a class is based. And that's why we, the working class, are gonna have to fight for the measures that are needed. And in some ways, that fight has already begun with the rest of our panel tonight we're gonna hear from workers activated into organizing by the COVID-19 crisis. But tonight's panel is only the tip of the iceberg. There has been a wave of wildcat strikes, other strikes across the country in recent weeks. Workers at Fiat Chrysler, Purdue Poultry Processing, Amazon, the Detroit Transit System, McDonald's, and several others all walked out in March demanding health and safety precautions related to the virus. In New York, the movement of radical educators, which is an opposition caucus inside the United Federation of Teachers in New York, organized a highly successful teacher's sick out that forced Governor Cuomo to shut down the schools, which he had been very slow to do despite responding quickly in other ways. There have also been rent strikes and even a trending hashtag for a general rent strike. The only times that large scale reforms and social spending intended for the benefit of the working class, the only times in the 20th century happened were the 30s and the 60s. Now spending increased most under Democrat Roosevelt's New Deal. But in second place is not who you might think. No, it wasn't Johnson's Great Society, but it was under the Republican Nixon. The common denominator of those two periods in which resources were federally directed to uplift working people on any kind of significant scale was not which party controlled government. Rather, it was that large-scale militant action by working people from the 30s general strikes and factory occupations to the 60s black freedom uprisings and public sector unionization. That's when we in the public sector mostly got organized, was the 60s. All of that destabilized the usual ability of the system to rule and bring stability on behalf of profit-making. 
So hopefully the new stirrings that we're gonna hear more about from the next three speakers, the new stirrings of organizing and collective fights may be just what we need to get ourselves uh, uh, ready to defend ourselves as a working class majority facing recession. And if the come here sees a large scale awakening of collective action by working class people, it won't be the first time during a pandemic. During the Spanish flu pandemic, the largest percentage of US workers went on strike in history. Actually 20% of US workers went on strike in 1919 as the Spanish flu raged. And that included in Seattle, where the Labor Council of Seattle called for a general strike, all the unions. And during the week of that strike, the city government basically lost its authority. All the decisions made had to be approved by the elected general strike committee. The committee kept socially necessary work going, the essential work, like milk deliveries, but they refused other requests to keep the pressure on, requests that came straight from the mayor, Ole Hansen. The committee's security, the strike security, was made up of recently returned veterans from World War I. They replaced the usual police force on the streets and they patrolled the streets unarmed. And to me, that sounds like a democracy by and for the working majority compared to today's corrupt democracy for the rich. Sometimes it takes a crisis, like Spanish flu and World War I, 1919, for us to realize some of the things that we're capable of that we wouldn't normally see. I'll just close by saying, as horrible as this crisis is, it has shown the possibility for big changes. It has clearly shown that workers are the ones who make the economy run. We make the economy run. It has revealed starkly the inability of the market to provide for people's basic needs. It's opened up new possibilities for exercising workers' power as the economy increasingly leans on a smaller number of workers, some of whom are highly organized. And I saw nurses uh, demonstrating in Washington, D.C. this day. They're one, transportation workers are another, county workers may be another. We are right now really in a fight for our lives, but if we organize and struggle, it could become a fight for a better world on the other side of the catastrophe. All right. Um, well, thanks, Avery. Um, next is Leslie. Hi, everyone. Can everybody hear me? Yes, I can. So it's National Library Week. Who's been using their library? You should raise your hand. Um, you should be using your library because your property tax are paying for it. So um, this is something that um, as a county employee, as a local government department, one of the few socialist-based government services, right, that are still fully accessible by the public. Um, some of the things that 
we do just on a daily basis is provide facilities for people that are part of vulnerable populations like the homeless. They have the access to um, air conditioning and bathrooms, Wi-Fi, a spot to recharge not just their phones, but themselves. And these are all services that we provide happily. And now that we are closed, it's really a blow to us as library workers and the communities that we serve that we aren't able to be open and invite people in, especially during this week that's so important to us, National Library Week. So um, we as libraries have always been around, right? We've been around since the clay tablet and all through scrolls and now through ebooks. And we've always adapted to what the people need. And we did, we did it back in um, 2009 when the recession hit. The recession hit, our funding is based on property taxes. Our budget was cut. And in truth, the department never recovered. Here we are 10 years later, our staff was shrunk and it may sh yet shrink again to even thinner skeleton crews for these branches that provide such vital services to the public. So what kind of services are we talking about, right? We're talking not just books and movies and internet access, but referral services. A lot of our libraries have social workers that come in and provide um, referrals to families and people that are looking for, um, for help, right? Mental health, looking for housing, looking for food, right? These are all things that people come to the libraries because they trust us for, but we don't necessarily have that training. This is why we make partnerships with our other county departments. And with this outbreak of COVID-19, a lot of what we do on a daily basis of public facing service was turned on its head. So we had to adjust to um, social distancing protocols, right? Um, wearing gloves at the desk, um, removing the chairs and essentially telling people, sorry, you can't meet here. So to our public, um, and we kind of had to go through a really quick culture, culture change in terms of we as library workers are always so focused outwards. We are willing to fight for funding to, and grants to serve the community and serve uh, the people that really need it the most, but we don't usually take the time to do that for ourselves. And with this um, pandemic that um, started making the rounds, we kind of had to organize ourselves very quickly um, to not just protect the community, but ourselves as workers. We started losing staff, not just to being sick, but the schools were let out. So staff with children, who may not have had um, childcare options were no longer able to come into work. Staff that were 65 or over stayed home. 
And it became very quickly apparent with our skeleton crew model that as our workforce shrank, it was more and more difficult to provide what we needed. And that meant adjusting hours and um, reducing the types of services that we did. One of the last services that we tried to provide was curbside. And this was um, at the very, this was mid-March. We were looking for, we were thinking of ways of how we could continue to provide services. And um, our administration was working round the clock. And um, before we closed on March 20th to the public, we were being directed to provide curbside service, which is a wonderful idea, but it wasn't be, it wouldn't be implemented in a safe way. There was no PPE for staff. There was no methodical way that we could set up curbside to keep staff safe and the public. The, um, the fact that the libraries were open were, it was encouraging the public to come in. And in any normal circumstance, we would be like, yes, come through our doors, check out books, take movies, use the building, just don't abuse us. But that wasn't what our health, public health officer was telling us to do. That wasn't the that wasn't following the advice that we were hearing from the state. And it was mostly because people who trust libraries, they trust us, they trust us to tell them the right information and to direct them in the right, um, in the right way towards what they're looking for. They, the public was felt that if we were open as a library, it was safe to come out. And that's where we kind of had to take a stand and say, curbside is not the safest way to do this. We need to move our services online. And we did that. We organized, we got ourselves together, and um, we spoke at one of the bargaining meetings. Um, but that's just the current issue, right? There's a lot of other things that go on. There's a lot of things that we need to organize as librarians, as library workers on a national level um, to address the, there's no social safety net for any mental health or, uh, you know, we've seen a lot of an uptick in gun violence and um, stabbings at libraries. We've done some things to address that with some security guards, but it's just not enough. Um, there's a lot of things that need to be worked on and this was the first step, I think, in the right direction towards um, not just protecting our communities, but ourselves as public county workers. Any questions? No, Leslie, thank you for um, the input on all the changes that the, just one small portion of county workers are, are going through. After you know, is going to be Armando, um, Armando Valenzuela. Let's see if we can get you on YouTube. Hello. Can hey, Armando. Yes, hi, I can hear you. Hi, hi everybody. Okay. Um, as you well, um, 
have heard, you know, my name is Armando Valenzuela. I am a um, uh, member of United for Respect. Uh, we're an independent organization made up of uh, Walmart associates, uh, among other things, and other retail workers, um, uh, trying to improve our working conditions in our, uh, at our stores. Um, that's the official line. Um, I can't go into um, what my group. Oh, by the way, um, I've been a, a, a an associate for a Walmart associate. Um, I'm a current full-time Walmart associate. I've been such i've been one since 1996 so it's um i have been working for the company in tw for 23 and a half years so um uh i can only i can't speak for the entire uh, organization but i can only speak for my own experience right right now what i'm going through right now and um some of the things i've done uh um uh, in um, uh, for the, for the company, they, they've asked, or at least the things that the, the uh, organization has done, uh, uh, asked me to do for them. So um, I'll uh, I'll I'll just start. Um, about a couple of weeks ago, uh, so about a month ago, um, the, the COVID nineteen uh, pandemic officially became a um, the reality of, of the epidemic became. Um, came to pass when Governor Gavin Newsom uh, put out a, um, a stay-at-home order. Um, so um, all life that I knew had just uh, disappeared. And um, since, since then, is, for me, it has been just going to work and coming home. Um, uh, first, just uh, wearing no, normal, uh, taking some some precautions. Um, just normally, just washing my hands more frequently than I do. Uh, that later on, I, I was wearing a, um, a uh, find myself wearing a, a, a mask. Uh, and then um, about nearly a week and a half ago, I had heard that somebody at my store had tested positive for COVID-19. Um, I did not know about, the only way I knew about this was when I heard it from an hourly supervisor, not a store manager, but an hourly supervisor. Um, uh, with that in mind, uh, feeling that um, I might've been, since uh, they can't tell me uh, what, um, uh, who it was, um, I had to assume that I probably was exposed to it. So I decided to self-quarantine and I did apply for the uh, leave of absence, which I am currently on, I am on now. I'm due to go back to work uh, this Saturday morning. Um, so um, uh, I've, I went and, apply, I, uh, went and applied. Um, I got full paid time off um, using the PTO that I had that I had accumulated um, uh, and I've accumulated quite a bit uh, considering that uh, the fact that I, I've been grandfathered into the into the um, um, into the system uh, so I include more hours than somebody who um, uh, has been working for the company uh, only like five or ten years or, or even less than that so I was fortunate enough to have that the PTO um, uh, to use and be a full-time uh, worker. Um, 
unfortunately i've heard that that this is the only time um i can i can i can get uh get pto for covid 19. um however um one of the victories that that um that, that we did uh uh gain um uh, was that gavin newston has uh put out an executive order saying that uh anybody um is that um grocery workers um I don't know if that applies to all retail workers, but uh, grocery workers are allowed uh, two weeks of um, uh, uh, of uh, paid uh, time off. Um, you'll have to check it. Um, I'll have to check it with you. But uh, I think that is one uh, victory we did we did make. Um, I'm sorry if I'm rambling a little bit here, but uh, but anyway, um, since since uh, my PTO. Time um, since my uh, LOA, um, I have been uh, working with uh, the likes of, of, um, of certain orga with organizers and other people to um, do what it is to um, uh, promote a uh, a uh, work um, a call out strike. Um, We've only done uh, only a few people, but we are planning on uh, doing more of these strikes um, uh, as we gain momentum, as we gain more people, as we find more people willing to um, uh, to um, take action. Um, you can you can be sure that uh, the, the, there will be more more strikes um, in, in the coming weeks. Uh, as for my own opinion about what what has been going on um, about um, about uh, COVID nineteen and uh, my company's uh, particular response to it, I've only seen um, um, the company company um, uh, taking um, more action just when somebody had came down with COVID-19, um, it, seems, it seems to me that they, they, they're taking more action now that, they, they've, um, not, that somebody has tested positive for COVID-19. Um, like fever checks before people, for workers before they come in, uh, more sanitizing, sanitizing the carts. They had been doing that before then and um, more controls on, on the, uh, um, on the entrance entrance into the into our stores, um, they had not they had only just um, they hadn't been doing that even though they, they had uh, pushed the the entrance to the garden center as opposed to uh, the main entrance. If that makes it, it makes any sense to uh, to be able to hear, uh, I think. Um, sorry, I I, I think. Um, the most um, the the um, the most um, uh, the most important thing for me to say here is that um, I think what we need is to make sure that if we are considered essential workers. Um, we should not let them uh, treat us as if we were also expendable and disposable workers. I think 
I think that's that's the, that's the real issue here, as that uh, the, those of us who are considered ex um, essential are also considered the most um, uh, expensable and the most disposable. And I think that's what needs. To, I believe that's what needs to change, and that's I believe our efforts with at, um, with um, uh, uh, United for Respect's efforts are all about. So um, that's pretty much what, what I have to got to say. Does that make sense, everybody? <laughs> yeah. No. Um, thanks for some of the insight into working at these stores that I think all of us, or at least most of us, are going to. to for our essentials, it's um, it's something I definitely think about um, every time I go, even when I don't go. I don't know. I feel lucky, and so I'd like to thank you for putting in what you have been uh, putting into at that front. Um, one thing I'd like to remind everyone about is um, is to save your questions for uh, for the very end, and that's just after Raphael. Raphael will be the last speaker. So Rafael is here um, representing the San Diego Tenants Union. Um, if you'd like to continue introducing yourself, uh, go for it, Rafael. Yeah, give me five minutes. Oh. Uh, well, well, you know, actually, questions while we're waiting for Raphael. So what I've done is I've allowed anyone uh, who would like to, to unmute themselves. Um, if you'd like to ask any questions, I think Jonathan will be uh, handling them or directing them for any clarification. Um, but if you have a question um, directed at any one of the speakers, please feel free to, to go for it. Yeah, just um, I guess can they are they able are they able to DM me? Victor, you're uh, you're on mute. Oh, thanks. I unfortunately the chat feature is not um, enabled on this meeting, and I, there's no way for me to turn it on in the middle of the meeting. So I'm I'm just gonna leave it open. Okay. Um, yeah. So it, I think anyone who'd like to, um, the feature to unmute yourself is now free now. So. So one question on my end, and this is Tipiano here with the SEU staff. But in general, uh, for those of you that have been doing this work um, uh, for quite some time, like, how do you sustain these efforts, knowing that it seems like a gigantic battle, especially when it work uh, when you're dealing with management that may not be. Uh, uh, willing to work or doesn't really represent the values of workers and so with that how do you sustain this uh, this movement and build upon victories hi this is iris um from from the county of san diego i'm a human service specialist and i'm also um I am one of the people at the table who speaks to their bosses at labor management. You just can't give up no matter what. Um, you have to make your points. You have to prove your points. You have to constantly keep your 
your um, people engaged. And it is it is a, a, a tough road to to hoe, but if it's something that you truly believe in, if it's something that you truly in your heart knows um, that you should be doing, I always go by and forgive people who are not religious by Matthew 25 and 40 when it says, when you do for the least of my people, you do for me. That's kind of like my model. And that's why I do the work that I do, that I, my office that I work out of works with the homeless. Um, my parents always brought me up as, uh, as a person who always should, you should always be a productive person and but you should always give back. So you just have to be persistent. Make people understand why you do the things that you do, why it's important to bring these things up to, up to, your, up to your leaders. And I'm done. I, I agree with Iris. I, I agree 100% with what Iris was just saying. And, uh, uh oh, looks like I'm mute. Okay. Um, I mean, I, I feel like as a long term rank and file member of, uh, of the county, you know, things can get frustrating, and it's, it's not always the case that everyone around you is willing to organize as much as you need to make progress, but there's always new issues. You know, the management structure, the way our workplaces are organized, it's undemocratic and it's not really human, you know, that we are hired, we're adults, but we don't get the full say in deciding on what happens. And I just say that to, because what it means for me and other people that I've noticed is that there's always issues that are gonna come up, even if we're tired, there's gonna be something else that comes along and makes us mad. For me, another important thing about keeping energy and keeping going is to try to link basically uh, it's just the idea of solidarity just the idea of solidarity <laughs> looks like i keep cutting out i keep cutting out here i'm sorry i don't know what's happening but i think meetings like this where we don't limit ourselves to our own work site or our own union um, but we reach across different groups and and share ideas with each other and then support each other that gives me a lot of strength and a lot of energy so i i feel like building solidarity across unions and across different groups of workers in san diego is one of the most valuable things right now that keeps everybody's spirits up because there's always somebody who's fighting and winning it's not that rare our side is the underdog so we lose a lot but we're actually stronger if we're organized. We're usually not organized enough to be stronger, but it's not rare. So if we're linked with all kinds of other groups of workers and, and people fighting against injustice, then we'll always be pretty close to some victories which give us inspiration and which also give us ideas. I, you know, just hearing as a, as a adult protective services worker, hearing about how Leslie and her coworkers were able to change a policy that was unhealthy for them, you know, she's got the same employer I do, that makes me feel more confident. We had a victory like that in my department for a couple of years. 
but this makes me feel like it's it's more possible. So actually, I think meetings and organizations, groups like this, I, I think play a valuable role. Mm-hmm. And can I just say, because um, I think um, a lot of people think that the librarians are meek. Um, we're not, we're just busy doing stuff. Um, and it was something that was really important to us um, only because we saw how busy our buildings were. They got extremely busy. Like the Sunday before we finally closed, we had something ridiculous like 1,800 people come through our door between the hours of 12 and 5. And it just felt like a slap to us. It felt like it was a slap to the face to HHSA. Nurses and healthcare workers already have a ton going on, right? And um, it felt like this was our chance. This was the time that if the healthcare workers were inundated, this was our time to step up and speak, not just for libraries, but in support of what all of our healthcare workers are doing. And um, we ended up with a win, which was really great, but it was the first win that we'd had as a library department in almost a decade. So it really bolstered our morale, it bolstered the momentum that we had lacked for a long time in terms of representation and advocacy for ourselves. So we've gotten the ball rolling for a lot of things that we're hoping pan out in a good way. But, you know, it wasn't just a win for the libraries. It was really intended to win and support HHSA and all healthcare workers. Okay, uh, can, can you everybody hear me? Yep. So I, I wanted to oh. ask uh, Armando. Oh, just, yeah, just a heads up for everyone. This is Rafael. Yeah, I wanted to ask Armando and anybody else can, can also add, uh, what's the situation with, with your coworkers? Uh, how are they dealing with rent payments? Uh, do they have family members that are missing work and is it affecting their payments? Are they organizing around that? Um, no, I haven't heard anything. I haven't heard anything about that about um, about rent payments or anything like that. But I, I will look. I will look into it. I'll, I will ask that question. I do belong in, in, to Facebook groups um, dealing with this. Uh, so, uh, dealing with um, uh, uh, um, with um, uh, I do belong to face, Facebook groups. Um, that are related to uh, UFR. Um, I probably, I'm probably pretty sure there's at least one person on there that might have trouble with uh, with um, with um, rent. Though I'm not sure here if, if they live here in San Diego or not. But does that answer the question? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Any anybody else? Uh, any any uh, anything they've heard from their neighbors or, or relatives? Uh, friends regarding their income uh, and their rent situation? Uh, we were uh, at the Board of Supervisors meeting this morning, or virtually speaking in, and there was a couple members from A's uh, speaking on the importance of the rent moratorium. And so luckily for them, they had that community organization that was able to bridge that gap. But, you know, uh, moms that have been furloughed, uh, laid off during these times, and with that, you know, 
the first thing that comes to mind, you know, it's how, how are they going to provide shelter for their for their children? And so, uh, luckily, you know, we're pushing the county uh, on this, and you know, I know local cities have been uh, uh, putting their own uh, rent control moratoriums uh, that uh, supplement and expand what the state has already offered. Thank you for that. Uh, and anyone. Okay, so I think uh, just starting off, you know, we, we are working on organizing a rent strike with ACE uh, as well as other organizations, PSA is on the line, PSL, um, and obviously we've been working with, you know, Avery and the Borderland Socialist, and we've been putting on some uh, different activities and teachings um, throughout the city, throughout the county. We've uh, really taken a, a task of agitating. Uh, for us, it's important to make sure that people know that right now is a, is a, the, a very unique time uh, in, in, in history, and it's a perfect time to push forward a rent strike. Um, I muted myself. Uh, okay. the, the rent strike uh, that we're trying to promote is based on trying to attain, uh, attain a goal, which is uh, rent cancellation or de debt cancellation, debt forgiveness. We, we think that this will be uh, an, a unique opportunity that you know, under any other circumstance, with no moratorium in place, uh, we could never afford to to uh, basically attempt to do um, a general rent strike like the one we're calling for. Is you know looking at thousands and thousands of people withholding rent in unison, um, but also having the protection in place from the executive order. Uh, the moratoriums that have been put in place throughout the county, the city, the state. So there's specific protections for tenants that allow this rent strike to, to materialize and to Hey, Rafael. Hello? Looks like you cut off after materialize. Dematerialized. I'm sorry, that's a bad joke. So it looks like Rafael's dropped out of the call. He may be trying to reconnect. Um, it sounded a little noisy on his end, so hopefully he can sort that out. In the meantime, we can leave uh, the panel still open. If there are any more points of discussion or questions, just um, go ahead. It's still open for you to unmute yourself.
Hello? Hey, I'm Amda. Hey, how's it going? Is nobody. It's kind of silent in here. <laughs> okay. Well, um, so I guess on that note, you know, it's it's been already some time. It's a little late, and people are probably ready to to get some some grub. Um, I I'll pro I'll go ahead and and thank everyone um, who's here for joining us tonight, um, and particularly the, the panelists uh, for all your effort in in preparing uh, what you've had to say uh, to speak. Oh, Avery, do you have something? Yeah, yeah, go for it. Thank you. Um, I just texted Raphael, and uh, if he doesn't come back on in the next couple minutes, I'll see if he can give us some notes that can be shared with this group about what the San Diego Tenants Union is doing in this whole situation. Um, and I just wanted to make sure that everybody knows that this, uh, the group that organized this is called the uh, Labor History Caucus, um, San Diego Labor Left Alliance. And uh, we have been doing these once a month. We had to really change what we had planned in order to do this, both the format and the topic. And we've got a lot of things we wanna do in the future. Um, a lot of our immediate plans are on hold. So next week at this same time, actually at 6.30 rather than six, next Tuesday night, um, the caucus, the alliance, is going to meet again and talk about our future plans, how we can uh, continue these types of discussions. And I just want to invite anybody who hasn't been to one of those before uh, and who's interested to join us next Tuesday at 6.30. And you can uh, be part of the planning process. I still haven't heard from Raphael, so maybe I, I guess I'm back in Avery. Oh, there he is. Yeah. Unfortunately, I had some technical difficulties with my phone. It, it, it's this transition to 5G that uh, it seems to confuse my phone. But I'm on the computer now, so hopefully this works. I apologize, everyone. Uh, essentially, the, the process that we're undertaking in, in this rent strike is to make sure that people are protected. So right now, the most vulnerable people, you know, undocumented people, people uh, that have been laid off, you know, at the beginning of this uh, crisis, they they haven't been able to pay April, uh, which meant they're not going to be able to pay May, which means they're not going to be able to pay June. Uh, and, you know, in California, at least we have the executive order saying that they can't kick you out for not paying rent if you show proof that you've been affected, right? So right now the courts are still closed. There's no processing uh, evictions through the court at this moment. And the only way they can kick you out of your home is through a court process. So anything that the landlord may attempt, it might be uh, retaliation. So right now, a lot of landlords are retaliating after tenants send in the payment and landlords are, are trying to you know, collect money. Um, because a lot of tenants paid only partial rents or they sent in the letter saying they can't make the payment. So they sent notification, they sent uh, evidence, proof of, of the effects uh, that it, 
COVID has had on their incomes. And the, the whole process is to enable them so that they can move forward with this rent strike and make the larger demand for, for the rent cancellation. Um, we are also aware that, you know, the working class is being affected inverse, like adversely. So we, we want to make sure that even people that have uh, mortgages are protected from foreclosures. So we're also pushing for a mortgage freeze. We want to make sure that, uh, you know, people aren't uh, kicked out in one way or another. We, we, we are committed to fighting against displacement. Um, and we know that the effects of the health crisis itself is disproportionately affecting us. We know uh, that the economic uh, consequences are going to, you know, disproportionately affect the working class. So right now is, is, a, is a point in history when we're essentially going to take one road or the other. And we all see, we all see what's happening with Joe Biden. We all see what's happening with Donald Right, it's like Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan, and and they're they're about to take the championship again. So so, I know I may be having some uh, internet issues still. I don't know why, <laughs> but regardless, I I will continue. Um, when we're looking at the situation and and what's headed, you know, our way, it's either going to be massive uh, evictions because. 20 to 30% of the people are already not paying. We're seeing that LA has maybe 50% of uh, the people that aren't even working. So, you know, all these numbers lead us to, to the conclusion that we have to fight uh, as hard as we can to get this cancellation. Otherwise, they, they will try to, you know, stick the, the working class with this debt that we don't, that we don't need and that we, you know, we shouldn't take it upon ourselves to, to bail the, the capitalists out. It's not our position to do that. We're recognizing that uh, most of our labor income is going to basically, you know, this huge, most of the people, uh, and the, the way the tears break down, it's incredible, right? The people with the least amount of income are spending the greatest amount of their income on rent. And, and so on and so on. Uh, but over half of the people are already rent burdened. So we, ha we have all these economic factors. We have people unable to, to shoulder a $1,000 emergency. Um, you know, we have 60% of the people in that position. So, so, you know, the numbers just really, really make us understand that there are going to be hundreds of thousands of people that are not going to be paying rent in San Diego. Um, the question is, how do we make sure that those people are protected and know how they're pushing forward with this rent strike so that it, it is successful? Um, there, there are two methods to the strike. There, there's a strike that is conducing us to try to get legislation accomplished so that we win the, the, the strike in that way. But also, if buildings are able to organize, if communities are able to organize, um, target landlords specifically, then we're talking about winning it directly uh, through people power. We're talking about uh, flipping, flipping the, 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 the script 
And instead of taking the, the regular channels going through politics and policies, we, we get it through, through, through street justice and make sure that, you know, they have no option. They have no option to, but to either cancel that rent, forgive that, that rent, waive that rent, or negotiate some type of uh, repayment agreement that's a fraction of, of what the rent would have been and, and that's, you know, taking into consideration the tenant demands. Um, when we're looking at, you know, like Avery was explaining and, and Zach was talking about, um, and, and just before I got on this call, uh, Tenants Together, they were discussing what's going on around the world, right? So in Italy, established for a long time, tenants unions in Berlin, nationwide tenants unions that have been established for a long time, taking a, mil a real militant stance and, and making sure that this, this demand is seen through because we know the consequences and, and we can't afford them. And even though it's only a, a, you know, a small relief, just like the stimulus check, it's only a small relief, it's a necessary thing. It's a necessary thing Otherwise, we're, we're going to see a great calamity um, because landlords are already, you know, they're, they're essentially vultures. Um, they're vulture capitalists. They're, they're, they're parasites. They're sucking on, on the tenants' um, livelihoods, right? So tenants are getting this $1,200 stimulus check, and the landlords are already checking the internet to see if they got it and then asking them to, to hand it over as if it wasn't survival money because they're only driven by, by the profit and they're only driven by this idea that they, they, since they were able to acquire that real estate, they're entitled to, to whatever it produces. When we know that, you know, the labor of the worker that's paying that rent is producing any type of wealth for that landlord. Right. So, so. You know, the dynamics and, and position, just like workers are uh, versus their bosses, the, the tenants are versus their landlords. They're in a position where they 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 risk, you know, getting kicked out. Right? They risk having mar bad markings on their records. Um, they they risk having the police involved in their interactions. Right? So so these are all consequences, and and these are all consequences that are attached to retaliation. Uh, just just like you know, when, when labor unions organize uh, for specific demands and, and they're retaliated against. Uh, we have very similar dynamics and, and, and they play out in a very real way. Um, throughout, the count, throughout the country, there's a, the Autonomous Tenants Union Network that's spearheaded by LA Tenants Union and other tenants unions throughout the country, which have been holding very, very uh, robust, uh, you know, well thought out, driven conversations about what's coming next. Um, so the rent strike to attain rent cancellation is one step, but ultimately we, we, we have very specific demands and those are, you know, uh, I think my, my, my name says it, it's communist demands, they're socialist demands. These are demands for the working class to improve their status, uh, uh, you know, the status quo. Uh, we're trying to make sure that standard of living is improved for all of us. And when we're making these demands uh, in different complexes, because we've already been 
developing uh, several rent strikes throughout the city, throughout the county. But when we're making these demands throughout, you know, in, in the complexes, we're making sure that people are empowered and ready to fight back in the future, right? Not only, not only at that moment to win that victory then, but in the future so that they know that if that landlord ever comes back, you just get the troops together and, and you combat them and make sure that uh, they don't overtake you and you make sure that whatever demands you're pushing, uh, you, don't, you don't give up on. Um, this, this is gonna probably unfold as the months go on. There's gonna be more pressure on uh, tenants, on the working class to, to meet basic needs. And you know we're gonna have to cut somewhere and, and we're advocating for uh, food, not rent, you know? Don't, don't pay that rent if you need to make that, you know, your food money your survival money, your emergency money. And, and, and we're trying to make sure that people are understanding uh, how to use these protections, how to, how to address the landlord if they ever approach you after you're you know, utilizing these protections, and then how to be part of the union and organize tenants around you so that it's a stronger, it's a stronger strike. Um, there's a lot of stuff happening. There's a lot of coalition work being done by the major housing advocates throughout the state and locally <clears throat> and right right now there's a pledge going on that ace has going and, and we're all supporting <clears throat> it's the pledge to go on a rent strike and, and our understanding is that there's, there's already over two thousand people that <clears throat> we, we understand that there's over 3 million people on the, on the Rent Strike 2020 uh, site petitioning for, for cancellation of rent. Uh, we have uh, a couple hundred of tenants already on Rent Strike, uh, and we have a lot of them all on strike since April already. So this is uh, definitely something that's growing. More organizations are supporting it. Um, a lot of liberal organizations are already supporting the rent cancellation movement but it's important to back that up with the rent strike because otherwise that demand is just a demand that has nothing behind it we need to make sure that we have that spear and and we're and they know it's coming right they know it's coming so so we're going to prolong that strike as long as it it needs to go for us to gain some real victories and and this can uh as it's already been you know sparking conversation can actually turn into a more general strike we're already talking about you know a big portion of the population with we're withholding work whether we want it to or not it's it's easier to make that next conscious decision and say we're going to continue to withhold our work until we get our, our demands met. And, and yes, you know, we're talking about housing, we're talking about health, we're talking about education, we're talking about our, our you know, our necessities. So that, that's um, some of what uh, we're doing. We are establishing an, an eviction defense network. We want to mimic uh, history or, you know, allow history to repeat itself through different vehicles and be ready, right? We wanna have the attorneys ready. We wanna have 
you know, the groups of people ready to, to make sure that if, and if the sheriff shows up and tries to kick somebody out, we have hundreds of people, you know, putting the stuff back in. I'll take any questions or, or uh, whatever we're doing. Yeah, thanks. No, I, uh, before you joined back in, it, um, we were leaving it open to questions and, and uh, it looked like Avery had something to say. Okay, all right. Um, anyone else? We're back open. Our Victor, hi, this is Iris. Um, yeah. Are people um, that are having issues with the, with the rent and everything like that, are they being connected to groups like ACE and all the other ones that can assist them with the process? Yeah. I guess that's more of a question to the previous so speaker. Yeah, Raphael, go for it. And ACE is uh, taking the pledge. Uh, they're gathering the pledge uh, signatures. And Tenants Together is basically spearheading the, the tenant uh, defense. So, you know, we're, we're going to try to do what we're good at. And for the San Diego Tenants Union, you know, we're good at organizing, we're good at mobilizing, we're good at following through with our strikes, and uh, we're also going to be making sure that other organizations are aware of our activities. So we have tried to be as vocal as possible, getting people our toolkit, getting people our, our letters that they need to send to their landlords. We're trying to make sure that people are organized and aware. And we've been on, on multiple um, media outlets. We've also been on, uh, you know, we've been pushing through, through the Mutual Aid uh, Facebook page. So we're, we're, we're making an effort. Uh, and I think this coming week, it, it's going to be very clear. And people are definitely My main concern, you know, being an HSS, we are always trying to give our our customers, I hate that word, they're our clients truly, but um, as much information and other, you know, where they can actually get one-on-one -on -one help, that, that's the question I'm asking you. Are, are, is your, when you reach out to these people or when they reach out to you, are you giving them, hey, contact this organization so they can help you? fill out any paperwork that they need to have filled out to help them? Uh, yes, we are. Okay, that, that was the question I was asking. I'm sorry. If I, yeah. Some, sometimes doing, I get too wordy. Oh, no worries. Yeah, we're doing that. Um, we're also going to be having an organizers <clears throat> meeting soon, uh, like a training yes. for, for organizers so that, uh, you know, people can also know how to reach out to, to tenants and, and help them navigate through the process. That's great. 
because you know like like i think you were even saying or other people were saying the state of california really has put a, a protection up but you know there's always some that's gonna gonna try to push people out no matter what what the law says yeah so so we do have that toolkit and, um, share it to, to whoever's hosting so that they can share it to uh, everybody that signed in. Anybody else? Could that information be sent out to us, the participants? Yes. Yeah, I'd like to get my. I'd like uh, Rafa. I'd like. I'd like to, to get my hands on some of the information about the rent strikes and everything like that, so I can share with with the groups that I'm, that I'm with. Yeah, is uh, is somebody uh, taking the the emails from the participants? Can I get what, a, a, what I can do? do oh, I can't share it on. Oh, oh yeah, I can't share it with the chat. No, yeah, the chat has been shut shut down. But um, I believe I can. How about everybody who's interested take note of an email to reach out to? And then I think that can start a new thread. That might be the easiest way from here. If not, um, we do have a pretty... Um, an email, you said? Yes, an email address. Um, okay. Victor, do we, have, do we have any idea how many people have attended the call tonight? Yeah, at our peak, we were at about 18, 19. Right now, we're at 14. Good. Um, I think I I have uh, most of these people. Um, so, as far as an email address to um, to write to, please um, write down it's uh, Labor History Podcast. It's just one straight string of letters: Labor L A B O R History Podcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like to get in touch directly uh, to Rafael, uh, I think he can give you an address as well. Yeah, is everybody ready? Yeah. It's S-D, like San Diego. S-D, okay. Tenants, like 10 ants, united at gmail.com. Um, are there any announcements anyone would like to make uh, aside from anything directly related to tonight? Get a library card. Yeah. <laughs> Your money's going towards it anyways. You're leaving money on the table if you don't. Um, well, labor, 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 uh, most of the libraries are closed, right? We do online services. We're working from home. We're adding okay. ebooks. We're okay. doing a whole bunch of stuff. Go to sdcl.org and get an e-library card. All right. Just asking. PSL is going to be doing some type of action on Saturday. It, I believe it's going to be like a caravan uh, supporting the rent cancellation movement. Okay. And we're trying to push for the May 1st coalition to uh, 
put the rest strike at the forefront or make it one of the central points for the May 1st action. Right. Um, so uh, I'd like to thank again everyone for uh, for joining us and um, I hope everyone has a good night. I think that's that that about wraps everything up. Same to you guys. All right. Bye. Thanks everyone. Good job, everybody. Thank, you thank you. Thank you. Good night. Thank you. Good night. Everyone. Good night. Good night everybody. Bye. 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 Thanks everyone. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks.